On this edition of the Scott Thompson Show podcast with Scott Radley, that's me sitting in for Scott today, we're going to be chatting about whether or not school boards, school boards could find savings. We keep hearing that the government isn't doing enough, isn't spending enough to bring students back to class. Smaller classes are important. Are there savings to be found within school boards? The Canadian Taxpayers Federation says so. They'll explain where those are. Also, the idea of outdoor classes. Is that a gimmick or could outdoor classes even here in Canada work? Well, we'll find out about that as well. We're going to be talking about Google. Google Minis, Google Assistant, Alexas, those kind of things. A little issue the other day with those that somebody discovered a little creepy. You want to hear what was happening that may cause you a little concern if you have those in the house. And we will talk to Mark Hebsher about the CFL, about the NHL, about a bunch of other stuff in sports as well. Stick around. Today on the Scott Thompson Show on 900 CHML. Welcome to the Scott Thompson Show here on 900 CHML. Scott Radley in for Scott Thompson again today on what is National Fresh Breath Day. It's a true thing. So let's everybody, before we get going here, just test your breath. If it's clean, if it's good, if it smells all right, you are welcome to join us. If it's not... You know, go brush, go gargle, do something, then come back. We'd love to have you here. We just, we prefer that you have fresh breath while you listen. It helps. It helps the experience. It's a full multi-sensory experience if your breath is fresh when you're listening to the radio. We have a very, very, very full show for you today as we head down the home stretch towards the weekend. Thursday, August the 6th. Can't believe we're already moving in this far into August. Uh, We are going to be chatting about schools because, you know, the discussion continues. You heard so much talk, arguing really in a lot of cases, about whether the Ontario government's back to school plan is a good one, is a bad one, is somewhere in between. And I will let you decide what you think. Chances are, even if I wanted to, I couldn't change your mind because those who support this government probably think, yeah, it's not bad. And those who don't support this government probably think, you know what, it's destined for disaster. And we don't know yet. Could be either one. But one of the issues that we cannot get away from in this discussion is money. The government says says it's spending something like $300 million to reopen schools. The opposition put out a report a week, two weeks ago, that said the cost that it believes it would take to safely reopen schools would be in the neighborhood of $3.2 billion. Doug Ford was asked, and this all comes down in, in large measure to how many teachers you have and how many classrooms you have in smaller class sizes. Here's what Doug Ford said yesterday in his press conference when he was asked about those class sizes. If it was up to all of us, we'd have five kids in a classroom. But in, in saying that, uh, we have the lowest amount of kids in JK in the country. We have the, the lowest kids from, from grades one to three in the, in the country. Uh, we have 15 kids, uh, equivalent to 15 kids for every, uh, every teacher or ECE. So we're, we're doing pretty good. Let, let's give this a shot, uh, at least. And when I hear people from BC uh, chanting that they want the Ontario uh, plan, that's not bad. The, um, the idea, the, the sentiment, it seems, reading between the lines of what the Premier is saying, you know, if we could, we'd have five kids in a class. It sounds like, you know, in, a, in an absolute ideal utopian world, Sure, let's have one kid per teacher and one kid in a class. That sounds like a money issue. And it's always a money issue, it seems, whenever we're talking about education. I want to bring in Jasmine Walton, who is the Ontario Director of the Canadian Taxpayers Federation. Um, Jasmine, am I right? Am I reading this right or am I missing it or am I just being um, silly to say that it seems like any time we talk about education with any kind of issue, whether it's safety or anything, money always seems to be at the middle of it. Absolutely. And in Ontario, the uh, teachers unions have spent a lot of money advertising. They're one of the top political advertisers on Facebook, uh, convincing Ontarians that Doug Ford is making cuts to education. They spent the eight months prior to COVID convincing Ontarians of that, when in fact the opposite was true. He's brought education funding to historic highs in the history of the province. He spends more on education than Kathleen Wynne ever did. And, uh, you know, our issue with that is that dumping more money into education right now is like dumping more water into a leaking barrel. 
there's a lot of waste happening in the Ontario education, public education system. And from our perspective, you know, it's reasonable that the the province should be spending money on safety measures. But before they give school boards any more money, they should be saying, stop wasting what you've already got. Give us some examples, because I know, I mean, you point out, you had a piece that was written and you point out some of the examples and you're not even talking about unions, just to be clear. It's mostly school boards that you were looking at. Where can money be saved? Sure. Well, the biggest example would be in compensation, because four out of every five dollars that goes into education in Ontario goes toward compensation. About 80 percent of education funding is in compensation and about 50% of the compensation that we pay in education goes to teachers. So teacher salaries are inevitably should be scrutinized because they're astronomical. Um, But also that's key to bringing, you know, uh, if, if we want to pay for safety measures, let's look at where the money is currently going and that's teachers. So before the show, I took a quick look, for example, in Hamilton, there are 812 teachers in Hamilton alone on the province's sunshine list, which is any provincial employee earning over 100000 a year. But teachers don't just get their salary, of course. Taxpayers pay for their amazing benefits and their world-renowned pension, uh, pension contributions that are taxpayer-funded. So when you look at the total compensation of top-earning teachers, uh, they earn over $120,000 from taxpayers every year. And there are 812 of those types of teachers in Hamilton alone. Um, so if you look at the average income in Hamilton, for example, that's about 43000 which is a third of what teachers make. Uh, they just signed on to a raise during COVID while 2.2 million Ontarians either lost their jobs or had hours reduced. So I think that compensation is absolutely an area of excess when it comes to our public education system that needs to be brought back under control. But there are let me let me jump in for one sec if I can, Jasmine, because sure. this is something we've that we've talked about on this show, and not about teachers, about bureaucrats in general, because we we're talking about you know the federal employees uh, for the government. They announced last week or the week before that ten thousand federal employees were getting an increase over the next three years, and it just seemed incredibly tone deaf at the time when so many people are hurting. And I wonder if that's not the same thing here. Look, we're not going to whittle back teacher salaries. I think a lot of people would say we shouldn't do that. But it seems as though when we keep hearing the phrase, we're all in this together, this would be an ideal time when we're looking for so much money to get schools open and looking for cash and everything else for the unions to say, hey, you know what, for a year, we're going to defer those contracts so we don't have to give those increases right now. We're doing okay we want money to be available to help with opening schools and being safe. To me, it, it, I don't know if that money would cover the things the school boards and the unions want, but boy, it would send a message. Well, look, I think it absolutely should be on the table that we're going to bring their salaries back in line with reality. But I'll remind you, the province for every 1% raise it gives out to government employees, of which teachers are government employees in Ontario, every 1% raise costs taxpayers $720 million dollars. So the raise that all these teachers just accepted in the midst of COVID, um, when you compare $720 million was given out for raises, but only $300 million is being given out for COVID safety measures. So if the teachers were really serious about needing COVID safety measures in their school, why did they accept additional education funding to go toward their bottom line when they're already extremely well compensated? And look, I have a lot of respect for teachers, um, but at the same time, uh, I think, look, you look at grocery store clerks that went into work in the middle of everybody's job is important. We're in a society where we rely on each other. So you can't say that teachers' pay should be so out of whack with the taxpayers covering their bills. But there is a number, compensation is one area where we could rein in excessive spending, but there are a lot of other examples of waste uh, in, in the uh, Ontario public education system. Well, and you point to uh, school boards and um, and some of the things. And one of the things you refer to is a story from a number of years ago, the Toronto Star did. And the Toronto Star is not a union or teacher or school board bashing paper generally. Um, and, and some of the numbers that are in there for work that was done on schools, maintenance and construction things were were crazy. 
Absolutely. So, um, and this comes down to the Toronto District School Board is the largest school board in the country. And they last year opted out of provincial competitiveness legislation that would have opened up their construction contract to fair bidding, allowing different groups to bid. Competition drives down the price. Instead, they chose to stay with only unions. So we can expect to see more construction jobs with astronomical prices like $150 to install a single pencil sharpener with four screws or $857 to hang three photos on a wall, which apparently took 24 hours. Yeah, my, my favorite one on this list, and when I say favorite, my tongue is in my cheek, <laughs> was uh, $2,670. Now, this is a few years ago. To replace burned out light bulbs in a lunchroom at a school took 70 hours to do that. 70 <laughs> hours. I, I don't know what kind of light bulbs these are. Maybe these are special light bulbs, but man, that seems like it's excessive. Wow. And, and it's, it's, it's like Pentagon stories that we've heard about in the past for buying a $10,000 pencil. Absolutely. And Scott, I've got to say, the Ontario public education system has a lot of problems, but funding is not one of them. If you look at the per-pupil funding, um, which again, Doug Ford has brought to an all-time high in the history of Ontario, each student is funded to the tune of over $12,500 for each child. So on CBC this morning, I heard them saying, you know, it's an equity issue. Parents who can't afford um, to keep their kids home, they have to go back to work. They might feel unsafe sending them back, but they can't afford to stay home and homeschool them. Well, imagine Ontario had a voucher system where parents would get 12500 bucks themselves to put toward their kids' education. Um, I think that would open up a lot more doors. But if you think about it, at 12500 in a classroom of 30 kids, that's nearly $400,000 each classroom in Ontario is funded. So again, teachers unions will try and convince you that they don't have enough money. They've said that for years. They say that under NDP, Liberal, PC governments. They always say that, but they're extremely well-funded. They just need to stop throwing money down the drain. Uh, short, we're short on time, unfortunately. I wish we could go longer. One thing that I would love, and I thought about this earlier today when I knew you were coming on here and I started thinking about this topic. I'd love to see what would happen. And it never does because we never seem to ask, and it's not just teachers, I'm talking about government employees in general, we never seem to ask for them to find savings. It's just always about, can you please add more funding? If the government said to the teachers, to the school boards, pardon me, not even the teachers unions, the school boards, we will match you dollar for dollar in new education spending for every dollar you can save. We'll take the saved money and the dollar that we'll add, we pledge to you and put it into education. I bet you that lots and lots and lots of money, if they wanted to, could be found. If they oh. were told that it was going to go back to them, I, I'm guaranteeing that money would be found that could be saved. Absolutely. And quickly, as you'll recall, the Premier last year offered to fund line-by-line -line audits for school boards to help them find savings. Only three out of the province's 72 public school boards took him up on that offer. And I will mention for your listeners that Hamilton Wentworth Catholic District School Board was one of the three. Um, so, look, they have no incentive right now to find savings. They'll continue to ask for money. But like I said at the start of the show, pouring more money into public education now is like putting water in a leaking barrel. We need to stop the waste, find some savings, and then, look, we can adequately fund these safety measures in schools this fall. Janice Moulton, the Ontario Director of the Canadian Taxpayers Federation. Thanks for doing this. Thanks, Scott. Uh, and, and again, like I want people to note, with that discussion, for much of it anyway, from my perspective, it's not about even the teachers' unions there. It's school boards. Find, find savings. Surely not every dollar that we spend is being spent wisely. Find some savings. And don't continue to ask for more. It, it, with education, and I, I don't understand it because it seems as though if we just continue to spend more and more money, we keep getting told education will get better and better. Well, then why are EQAO scores going down and down and down, it seems, in math, especially when we're spending more and more money? I'm not sure money equates to education. Surely there's got to be a way that we can be smarter and more efficient. Let us move along. Staying with education, though, because it's a um, there's a really interesting... Um, idea going on now people are trying to think about with going back to education going back to school in the fall people are starting to try and think outside the box how do we how do we make this work and again it goes to the topic we were just starting with about you know how do we bring kids back into school safely well how about outdoor classrooms which i know some of you right now are saying that may be the stupidest thing i've ever heard of well hold on a second there are a number of places in the states 
that are already experimenting or planning to go down this road or preparing for this, and not just in places like Florida and California and Arizona, where it's warm all year round. Talking about Detroit and Maine and San Francisco, where if you've been there, you know that it's not always hot. Hillary Inwood is a lecturer. She teaches in the Master of Teaching program at uh, OISE. She leads its Environmental and Sustainability Education Initiative with the University of Toronto. She joins us now. Hillary, thanks for the, doing this today. Appreciate it. You're very welcome, Scott. Thanks for having me on the show. Um, is the idea of an outdoor classroom, even if it was for a period of time, because obviously we're not going to do it in the snow, um, is it completely crazy? It is absolutely not crazy. And in fact, you can do it in the snow. So I think this is an idea that has been taking hold in education in recent years across the world. And it's a fantastic time to uh, implement it more broadly here in Ontario classrooms. That said, I mean, there are people when I've read some stories about it, the word gimmick has been thrown around a lot. You're saying it's not a gimmick, that there is a there, there's a, a benefit to doing this, perhaps. Absolutely. This is not a gimmick at all. In fact, uh, nature is uh, our first teacher, and it's the most powerful teacher that we have. We have, as a human species, been learning in nature uh, for eons. This is not a new idea. In fact, the newer idea was putting children in small classrooms and thinking that they can learn everything that they need to learn inside uh, the four walls of that classroom. So there are many benefits for getting children outside. Uh, there are certainly physical benefits. And in a time of COVID, uh, the more distance, the more fresh air that we can have between learners and their teachers, that's actually a really good thing because it's going to reduce the transmission of the virus. Uh, but there are lots of mental health benefits to getting students outside of classrooms as well. We know that being surrounded by nature can help to reduce sensory overload. It can help to alleviate stress. Um, it can help to counter what um, Richard Louv, who's an author in the States, has called nature deficit mm. disorder. We know that people are spending more and more time inside, and there are ramifications of that, that connecting with the outdoor world, uh, air, fresh air, with plants, animals that are around us, uh, really can help to uh, reduce our stress levels. Uh, in fact, many doctors are now prescribing um, to their patients uh, to, to get outside and get spend some time in nature as a way to counter some of the mental health stresses that people undergo. But well, I think the most important makes, thing. No, no, it makes a million, it makes all the sense in the world because when you need a break or I need a break or someone listening needs a break, what's the first thing they often do? They go outside right. to get they some fresh outside. air. Yeah. You're absolutely right. Yeah. But the most surprising thing that's coming out of the research these days is that in fact, taking children outside to learn can lead to a higher level of academic achievement. So this might be one of the ways that we as uh, educators can get students outside, can potentially uh, translate into higher grades, better cognitive function, and uh, some researchers are saying that it even leads to a higher level of creativity. Are we believing, and I don't know if we have an answer to this, are we believing there's something physiological to that, or is it just because a change is good for the for the mind? I mean, is it the fresh air allows your brain to function better, or is it just, hey, I'm not in my classroom, so it's something new and I'm going to pay more attention? Well, there's no doubt that um, if we want students to learn, getting blood flowing to all parts of our bodies, including our brains, is a great way to help to enhance the cognitive learning experience. But it's also a great way that, that to engage learners who need to move their bodies to learn. If you think of athletes, for example, athletes often learn best when they're moving. And so that's true for many uh, students and youth as well. They learn best by doing, by involving all aspects of their body and their minds and their hearts in the learning process. My God, uh, Hillary, I'll tell you something. You, you now, we don't have time to do this today, but I, I've long held this belief, whether it's in a classroom or otherwise, we have created an education system that oftentimes tell people to sit still for long, long, long periods of time. And there are some people that just about torments them and drives them insane. And what you're saying, I, I've thought it for a long time that we need to be able to allow something for those who just don't do well when they are told to sit still and don't move and pay attention for a long, long time, especially when they're younger. Absolutely true. And this is, there's an equity piece at the core here that if we want all of our students to be successful in learning, we need to broaden the ways in which we can reach them. And so getting a combination of both indoor learning and outdoor learning is much more likely to uh, result in a success for learners, a, a broader range of learners. 
right now, reading some of the stories about the places that are going to test this when the fall rolls around, it seems as though many of them, especially down in the States where this is seeming to catch on somewhat, many of the schools that are starting this or planning to do it are private schools, maybe because they're a little more nimble and they can get this happening quicker and get parents building or whatever else. Will public boards, do you think, be watching this and watching the private school students as guinea pigs? Or do public boards largely ignore what happens in private schools because they say it's an entirely different ecosystem and we can't replicate that? Look, there's no doubt that private schools are doing work outside, but there are many, many public schools and public school boards here in Canada that have been leading this way as well. In Maple Ridge, BC, for example, they've been experimenting with the forest school approach. Here in the GTA, uh, we've got some amazing teachers who are doing outdoor kindergartens, for example. Uh, we've also got lots of teachers who are taking their children as part of the eco-schools programs across the province. We're taking their students outside to inspire learning and getting students engaged in their communities, uh, helping not only to learn about their communities, but also to help solve problems for their communities. So there's a really easy connection that can happen between outdoor learning and leading students into learning about the environment and how they can help reduce the impacts um, of of humans on their environment. So uh, there's so many amazing examples here in Ontario. We don't need to look to the states, Hmm. for example. We can find them right here in the GTA. Fascinating topic. Uh, Glad that, you know, I I didn't know where you were going to go on this one. I didn't know if you were going to come on and say that it was a gimmick. Fascinating that you say not at all like that. Hillary Inwood, lecturer, teacher in the Masters of Teaching program at University of Toronto. Thanks so much for the time today. Really do appreciate it. Thanks for your time, Scott. And and to that point, uh, broader, and, you know, we may get to this one of these days. We're not going to do it right now, obviously. I am a firm believer that we need to do things differently for some kids. There are kids that just are suffering in school because telling them to sit still for an hour or two at a time just doesn't work for them. And, and you know, we'll, we'll say, well, you know, you just have to. Well, you know, we try to find ways to make things better and work better for a lot of people. That's one of the ways, maybe having them outdoors where they can move around. Maybe it's a distraction or maybe it's the elixir that we've been looking for. Who knows? You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. I don't know if you're one of those people who has one of those Google devices or an Alexa in your house or something like that. If if you aren't, you know what they are. You've seen commercials for them or you've heard, you know, you've seen the ads. You know, you know what we're talking about. They are, they're cool little things that you can essentially, you know, listen to CHML news on it, or you can ask questions and get it. I mean, it's, it's, it's tapped into the internet. It's a, it's a. I don't know. You know what I'm talking about. Anyway, um, we love these things if we have them in our house, but here's how it's supposed to work. You turn to your little device that's sitting there asleep on the counter and you say, hey, Google, that's, you know, and those two words, it's programmed that those two words, hey, Google, wake it up and get it to start listening and then responding to your questions. At least that's what's supposed to happen. Small problem though. Uh, some folks discovered the other day that their Google Mini or Google Home or whatever you call it was responding to cues without hearing those two words. In other words, it seems it was turned on and listening all the time, which is not how it's supposed to work and quite frankly, a little creepy. Let me bring in Carmi Levy, who is a tech analyst. He joins us now. Carmi, how are you today? Oh, great to be here, Scott. Thanks for having me on. Well, thank you for doing this. Um, Look, I've got a couple of these in the house, and so I don't want to be overly paranoid, but when I start hearing stories that these things are on all the time and listening all the time, I mean, I'm not doing, I'm not growing pot in the house or doing anything illegal, but still it makes me a little concerned. And it should, I mean, we should always, you know, have uh, privacy and confidentiality front and center whenever we install uh, one of these devices. Unfortunately, we don't. We we tend to ignore the security aspect of it because it's just so cool. We just want to plug it in and make it work. Um, but there are real security concerns associated with them. And I say this as someone, I've got them throughout my house. I have various flavors of them. So you can buy it on a smart speaker. If you have a smart speaker, if it's a Google speaker, it'll have the Google Assistant software on it. If it's an Amazon Echo, it'll have Alexa on it. If it's an Apple device, if it's a HomePod, it'll have Siri on it. And then these very same services are also baked into all of our phones and our tablets and our laptops. So just, you know, within arm's reach of where I am in my home office, 
I've counted at least eight or nine devices that all have this stuff running on it, always listening to me. And the problem here is that that activation word, that command word, so it's, you know, hey, Google, uh, in the case of the assistant, Alexa, in the case of Amazon, hey, Siri, in the case of Apple, that's supposed to be the switch that says, hey, start listening, and then whatever I say after this will be what I want you to do. But they have updated the features in the background, and the, the, the companies, the various companies, are always rolling updates to them to make them even better at what they do. And in some cases, they cross a privacy line. Uh, in the case of the Google device, uh, it has um, it connects to your smart, if you have smart home devices, say uh, a, a smart uh, smoke detector or a smart thermostat. What it can do is it can listen for events. For example, if your smoke detector goes off, it'll tell you, hey, your smoke detector is going off and you can do something about it. It'll warn you on your phone. Sounds amazing. The problem is um, you have to be able to turn it on. But in some cases, software updates made it so that it would turn itself on. And so you wouldn't know because there's no light or anything, but it's already listening to you and it's and, and who knows what it's hearing. That's the scary thing is that that is the, yeah. changing the software. Yeah, we don't have to. That is anything. the scary thing. And we don't know. Like they, they said, OK, it's a little glitch. Sorry, we forgot to tell you. We forgot to fix this. It's fixed now. But how do I know the next time they update the software or how do I know in a more malicious, I suppose, way is how do I know that someone there doesn't just flick a switch so they can listen? That's exactly it. We have no, and I, like, I don't want to make this sound draconian. I don't want to make it seem that, you know, Google and Amazon and, and Apple are deliberately listening in on us. That isn't necessarily the case, but accidental surveillance is just as freaky and creepy as, uh, as intentional. And, and so, the technology uh, exists. That's right. And it's really easy for these companies from their remote data centers and locations to uh, flip that switch remotely in all of the devices that we have in our homes. And we have no visibility into that. And it's happened a number of times over the past couple of years. And every single time it, time it happens, as you say, it, they, they apologize. And they're like, oh, we're going to make sure that it doesn't, doesn't happen again. We're going to turn the defaults off. We'll, we're reviewing our procedures, our processes until the next time. And the next time, let me, and the next time. Carmi, we let me read you something. Let me read you something. Yeah. This came from a story in Mashable.com a couple of years ago, just actually just a year ago. And it was a story that with, I, I think it was Google. I'm not sure though, a number of conversations that people had. And when I say a number, like a few thousand were recorded and then shared with other people. Here it is. VRT News, which is a Belgian broadcaster, which got access to the leaked recordings described bedroom conversations, conversations between parents and their children, uh, but also blazing rows and professional phone calls containing lots of private information. This is where this stuff, like, uh, again, me and my wife having a conversation about what we're going to make for dinner or whether we're going to go out for a walk after dinner. Uh, it, who cares? I mean, I, I don't want people to listen just because of the privacy thing, but it's not going to alter the world. But if I'm having a private conversation where I give out credit card numbers or banking information or medical information about someone in my family or others, I do not want that stuff just grabbed by somebody. Well, I think that's why we need to start thinking about uh, where we install these devices in our homes and kind of which rooms are off limits for those kinds of conversations. So we will not uh, bring that, bring those speakers into our bedrooms, for example, and uh, washrooms. Wise choice. <laughs> exactly. And, and so, and we have one in the, in the uh, kitchen, but we don't have one in the living room. So if my wife and I are ever discussing financial issues, for example, and we recognize the privacy of those, we'll do one of two things. We'll either move the conversation into the living room where there's consciously not one of these devices, or we will go to the device and, and get familiar with them because they all have them. There's a, there's a mute switch on all of them. You can turn the mic off so it isn't listening. And then when you're, you're done adept. having your confidential conversation, you turn it back on. But you're Simple. adept at this, Carmi, and you're thinking yeah. about this. You're conscious of this. Most people, I would argue, once they install this into their house, they don't think of the device until they think of the device. If they want to ask it a question, they go, oh, I can ask Google that. But mm -hmm. they don't think that it's there unless it's front of mind. You're absolutely right. And, and, you know, from where I sit, though, I think we all need to raise our game. You don't need to be a tech expert in order to have a, uh, an awareness of security. And, you know, like, for example, we don't leave the house without locking the door. We, we're not all expert locksmiths, but we know how to put a key in a lock and lock the door. The same kind of logic should apply to all the technologies that we bring into our house. Know how to turn them on, know how to turn them off, know you know, kind of what their weaknesses are. For example, that sometimes they think they hear the command word, hey, Google, but that isn't necessarily the case. Uh, you know, in, in my house, if I close a door, uh, a cupboard in my kitchen a certain way, uh, it, it, it 
trips off my speaker. My speaker thinks that it's saying, hey, Google. Um, so, so I, you know, I've, I've learned very carefully that I should, you know, listen very subtly in the background if, uh, if it turns on after I make that sound. So they're not perfect. They're getting better, but we've got to have more awareness of this. And, you know, what scares me is I talk to most of my, you know, my friends, my colleagues, and no one is talking about this. It mm. doesn't seem to bother anyone that these things are constantly listening. They love the convenience. They're willing to put up with the security risks. And I'm saying, no, it's time that we kind of give our give our heads a shake. We need to start prioritizing this, and we need to start taking precautions because uh, there are cyber criminals out there who will take advantage of that and use those recordings, use that data against us. And that's obviously the worst case scenario. But I'll tell you something else. We just saw the story. I know you saw this story. Most people did. Uh, the mm-hmm. story of the Golden State Killer who was just convicted and how he was found a year or so ago where they, some very clever police officer said, hey, let's go into one of those ancestry databases and give a fake sample of like DNA and we'll see if there's someone related to this person. And it was brilliant policing, quite honestly. But now there's all kinds of privacy concerns. Well, the same thing could happen here. There could be some very clever law enforcement agency that says, wait a second, we think Carmi is running a multinational meth growing operation or meth (laughs) cooking operation. And you know what? He's got one of these devices. Maybe we could just listen in to hear him talk with his colleagues about this thing. Again, you would need to have, you know, uh, um, court Mm -hmm. uh, permission, warrant to get it. But it's still, we've, we've invited a fly on the wall into our house that could be used now in all kinds of ways that we don't even fathom. Absolutely. And, uh, you know, the first thing that I do is, is, and, you know, is look to the device and know where the controls are. And I think that that's, we shouldn't be using them if we aren't familiar with the very simple buttons on it. Step one. Step two, look at our phones and other devices too, because they all have the same software on them. Learn how to turn off the voice activation. In other words, my laptop shouldn't have to answer to, hey, Siri, because I don't really need it. So I turn it off. Same thing on my tablet. I don't need it all the time. And on my phone, I only turn it on when I'm outside of the house. Uh, that way I use it consciously, but it isn't kind of tripping off in the background. Second thing, uh, in many cases, law enforcement will not need subpoenas in order to find out more about you. All they need to do is go to your social media accounts and strip off all sorts of incriminating information on it that we shared voluntarily. So kind of take a look at the kind of pictures that you share, uh, where you shared them from, because uh, that gives up a lot of information about you that law enforcement and maybe the bad guys, too, can also use against you. And I find in many cases we're simply oversharing online and we're almost opening the door for mm. bad things or nasty things to happen to us. Yeah, and I don't like to be paranoid and I don't like to believe that this could be used for nefarious purposes and I don't believe right now, like right now, I don't believe governments are tapping into our, like, I'm not one of those people who's a crazy conspiracy theorist who says, oh, they're mm-hmm. listening into everything we're doing. My simple concern is the technology clearly now exists that if you had a government that decided it wanted to, or a group, you know, there are clever hackers out there. This is now technology that we have put in our house that has a microphone that is designed to listen, that we've said, we trust this enough that we will put it in the middle of our house. And when you have cases like we're reading about where occasionally you hear the company go, oops, 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 to me is not a good word when you're talking about this kind of technology. Exactly. You know, uh, an inadvertent mistake is not acceptable when there's so much at stake here. I I keep thinking of the word uh, reasonable. Um, And so, you know, for example, what is a reasonable level of care when we are out and about walking the streets of downtown and we want to make sure that we don't get mugged. So we don't walk around in the middle of the night. We don't walk around alone. We walk with a partner. We are, you know, we keep our eyes open. We don't put our music in and kind of, you know, seal ourselves off from the environment around us. We street proof ourselves. We aren't paranoid. We don't stop going out, but we are just reasonably aware of what's going on around us to minimize our exposure. I think the same logic applies to technology. We shouldn't freak out over any of this. We shouldn't subscribe to conspiracy theories or not use the technology at all. But we should recognize that there's a certain degree of risk. And if we take certain precautions against that risk, we can then use these devices in the way that they were intended. We can get that convenience factor from them. 
without necessarily exposing ourselves to all the nasty stuff as well. We can have a balanced approach. We just need to do a little bit of homework first. Yeah, it's a great point. It's a great point. And it doesn't even have to be malicious. And, you know, I read somewhere not that long ago that some of these devices, the next generations, they're talking about maybe being able to put cameras into them so that you can just sit there and, and, and add that to it. And I'm thinking, yeah, okay. Yeah, I mean, that's what we need is an oops situation where I've been walking around the house in my underwear or worse, if, you know, someone hasn't thought this through and they, they have put one in their bedroom and suddenly they don't think they've got a sex tape out there, but guess what you do? Um, you know, these things are, they're great devices, but you're right. You do have to not just trust completely and forget that they're there. As you say, Carmi, it, it's, if you're going to have one, you got to be wise about it. Exactly. You know, I always say the, the buck ultimately stops with us, you know, the end mm-hmm. user, the ultimate consumer. It's not Google's or Apple's or Amazon's responsibility that we stay safe online. They give us the tools and it's up to us to understand, uh, you know, the ins, the outs, the pluses, the, the minuses, the, the specifics about how they work and to become familiar with them. We do the same thing when we drive a car, we buy a car. Any device Indeed. that we buy, any consumer device, we are taking those precautions. We should apply the same logic to uh, all of our technology and not use lack of tech savviness as an excuse uh, because that's going to get us into trouble. And that means that it, it we're will. simply making it easier. Yeah. Carmi Levy, tech analyst. Always love having you on. Thanks for taking the time today. So great being here, Scott. Thank you. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. Everything's back. The NBA, Major League Baseball, the NHL, the NFL is talking about coming back. Soccer is back. UFC, golf, CFL, not so much. Uh, let me bring in Mark Hebsher, familiar name, familiar voice to everybody from around here, not only from his years at CHCH, where he did great work, but also before then, I mean, if somehow you've been in a coma for the last 20 years and you're thinking, Mark Hebsher, wasn't he for the guy from Sportsline years ago? Yes, same guy. Um, Mark, hey, always love having you on. Thanks for taking the time today. As always, Scott, are you kidding? With an introduction like that, I mean, how can I not be in just such a great mood? Well, and I also left out the fact that you're the author of a book and you are the host of your own podcast and I have no idea what else you're doing. Male modeling perhaps on the side now to make it, I'm not really sure what else, but hey, Uh, listen, I got a couple things I want to get to um, with, with you. Let's start with the NHL today, just because we're, we're now knee deep in the NHL and I was reading something. First of all, I've, I've enjoyed the NHL coming back way more than I thought I would. I'm thinking myself in the middle of summer, I'm not really sure how enthusiastic I'm going to be. I've, I've, I've somehow found myself completely engrossed in it right away. Are you, are you on board or are you a, a late arriver? Oh no, I'm on board because I think the idea of having four or five games every day makes it seem like baseball. Just the fact that you know that, Oh, it's in the afternoon. Let's say you flip the TV on. Hey, Minnesota's playing Vancouver. My problem, though, is when I'm watching the game, sometimes I don't know if I'm watching them live or it was last night's game or from earlier in the day because there's so many Sportsnet channels. So it's difficult to keep up. The other thing is, is that I'm still unsure as to like what the next round of the playoffs is going to look like and what the difference is between one team leading a series and the other one is just being a round robin. So there's a few things I'm unclear, but at this stage, I think the hockey's pretty good. And I think they're doing a good job in the arenas, I think, and uh, certainly on the television um, broadcast for the most part, um, of giving you a sense that there's some energy in that building. That's, yeah, and, and, all, and you mentioned it's like... To do. No, and you mentioned it's like baseball. The other example that I thought of the other day when I was watching, because one game just sort of bleeds into the next one, it was a little like March Madness, where there's always something going on. You can just, there's a game on all day if you want to watch. And that's that's terrific. You, I mean, you're going to need to have 97 teams in the NHL in order to do this full time. But, you know, who who knows with expansion what Gary Bettman might push for someday. There may be a team in Barry's Bay before he retires. I don't know. Um yeah. Nonetheless, it's a, it's a, it's been way better than I expected. And somebody suggested, now here's where I may want to pump the brakes a little. Somebody suggested, look, it's been so good. This is proof that we should add more rounds to the playoffs and extend the playoffs in perpetuity. This is now our new world. Forget the regular season. We just want way more playoff series. Would you be on board with that? I I think I could go for some, um, some type of hybrid. I do like, I mean, there's things I like about the English Premier League and the uh, European soccer where teams are relegated 
uh, and such. We don't have that same type of system, but I kind of wish we would. Do you know? I mean, the top How would that really, work? Even, even for the teams that aren't in the English Premiership, like the one division down, if like the Champions League or whatever they call it, it's still like, like there's huge um, viewerships. There's like people are, they just want to see their team play. And so I think that, yeah, the more meaningful every game is, especially over a long season, the better. So why not have a race to see who gets the playoff spots? You know, shorten the regular season. And, and have a race. Let's go. Who's the, who are it's not, it's not, it's going to be. And, and it's, it's not a bad idea. Out. It's not a bad idea at all. I just look at the owners and I think, are, are the owners going to go with an idea that some teams will be fine? You'll have playoffs, but there's going to be half the teams that will be out with fewer regular season games and fewer gate monies. And how are they going to love that idea? Which I, I think the answer is they're not. Well, here's the, here's the thing. It's, you've got to have more television money, and hockey doesn't make television money the way other sports do. They're dependent, and remember, they're dependent um, on gate receipts more than any other league. And so I think their model is, is different, but it, it, it is going to have to change. And, you know, I, I don't know, Scott, I'm, I can't, I'm trying to picture two years from now, there's a vaccine, and the world has gotten back to sort of where it was you're going to have gatherings of people being close to each other. You can't, that's human nature. But I mean, just the whole concept of going to a game and being with thousands of people in an arena or, or going to a bar and with your friends and with, you know, hundreds of people in a place, I'm not sure that's going to be part of the future landscape. Uh, you know, I think people have just gotten used to not being around a lot of people and might be reticent to, you know, be that close to that many people. I don't know. Maybe, maybe I, I look, if, if the, if the Leafs can win this series and then go on into the real playoffs and do something, I think if you were to suddenly say, Hey, guess what? Uh, Air Canada center or whatever, what are we calling now? Scotiabank center, Scotiabank place, whatever it's open. Tickets are on sale. I don't think there's any doubt that you would be able to fill that place in about four seconds. Now, I don't know if that's the same everywhere, but certainly I, I think with certain teams in certain cities, People will come back instantly. Um, as I say, I'm not sure that that would be the case in every single place. There would be some people still who would be more doubtful about the virus than their love for their team. One may stop the other one. Well, we're making it sound like the virus is it's past tense. We're no. Making, it's, you know, it's almost as if we're saying, well, you know, all in due time, we'll be rid of this. But I'm not sure that's that. No, but, but Mark, think, let know, me ask you this. Our neighbors to the south. So I think that's going to have a huge effect on how we view sports, how we can consume sports from a live standpoint. I agree, live, but let me ask you this. People want to watch more than anything. You know that. They can binge watch The Sopranos or, or Ozarks or whatever, but that's, live sports is where the money is, is in television and live broadcasting and streaming. And so that's where the revenue has to come from not going to come from gate receipts as much anymore. And so every game has got to be more meaningful. And you're right. I mean, if the NCAA decided for their tournament to have every team play out of one city, one, can you imagine? That would be wild. I mean, because really all you need are basketball courts. You don't need places seating 20. Well, we've seen that with the NBA. Let me ask you this though, Mark, if you did, if you did today, throw open the Leafs arena and say tickets are on sale. You can come watch the Leafs. Do you think that there would be a shortage of people, even with the virus, even with everything going on? I think the place would be full instantly. I don't think that I I, see when you say the virus is not past tense, absolutely not. But I think there are some things in some places that people would be willing to take chances. And I would say going to a Leafs playoff game, you would have no problem finding 16 or 17,000 people willing to say, I'll take my chance with it. Well, that's a good point. I mean, we may never find that out, Scott. But 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 having said that, I think that if you were to say, look, you must physically distance, that's still the law, and you must wear a mask indoors, that's the law. I, I don't know. I don't know. All right, you got to wear your mask. And I'm sorry, but you know, we don't. We can't. We can't put seventeen or twenty thousand in there. We can do half capacity, right? And then it's three feet. Let's say. So every other seat like it is on public transit, you know, here, that type of thing. It's okay, it's not six feet, but, you know, we think three feet and wearing a mask. 
that combination, that's good enough. So let's say 10,000 people can go to the uh, Scotia or whatever. Uh, yeah, I think I, I, I might even consider it myself and say, oh, yeah, that's so, so that's a, that distancing is good for me. My question is this, how do you do it like in the concourses and in the bathrooms? You're going to have people, you know, but it can be done. And we are used to lining up. It's not like it's a foreign thing to us. So. I don't know, man. Like to keep your well, Mark. The world is a pandemic. So if they get before. if they were to put something in that says only every third or fourth seat at the Leaf game could be filled, uh, you may need to be a relative of Bill Gates to be able to afford those tickets with the prices <laughs> right. the Leafs will then set for those seats. That's exactly. You're exactly right, and they would be, and they're within their rights to do that. You because they can still sell them. You gotta pay William Nylander. You gotta pay you gotta pay Mitch Marner. You gotta pay these guys. <laughs> All right. So we're talking about money. Let me throw to a different league for a second who's having money problems of its own. Um we've been following, I know you've been watching as well what's been going on with the CFL trying to figure out how to get on the field. And there was a great piece written by Scott Stinson in the National Post today. And and I I think it raises some interesting points. And, and his argument is that what's happened in this pandemic has really exposed the CFL as being on incredibly shaky ground all the time. Do you think that's a fair comment or do you think, listen, it's just, it's a pandemic, it's a virus. Nobody knows how to be able to deal with this. It, d- does this show the CFL as being really wobbly or does this show just a league that, you know, is a smaller league and couldn't possibly have been expected to be prepared for something like this? Yeah, I think the latter. I think that, you know, the Canadian football, if I was to say to you, okay, Scott, um, name, the, name the greatest CFL commissioner over the last 30 years. Are you going to have a Was Jake Goddard in the last 30 years? Have, no, no. Yeah, are you going to have a top five list or are you going to have a bottom five list? Like, let's forget about Jake Goddard and all those years in the CFL apparently was doing just fine, and even though it wasn't because you had a blackout rule where you had generations that could never watch their home team play. And in our case, living in Toronto, and you know this, Scott, we couldn't watch Ticat home games or Argo home games because of that 75-mile local blackout rule. So they didn't have the foresight at the time to see what was coming. They didn't realize that when baseball and the Blue Jays came, the television was now going to turn and they had woo, live Jays games. And so, you know, even, I mean, had TSN not basically purchase the league by um, televising all of their games, you know, and for a time, you know, panel shows, um, um, weekly roundup shows, talk shows, you know, lots of stuff that was CFL branded, you know, was good for TSN. I think that's pretty much, that's what probably exposed them. Uh, that I, in my opinion, the folks at TSN were really the ones that were calling the shots and not the commissioner of the league. He didn't no, and they also the saved the league. They also saved yeah, it completely. Sure they did. Of course they did, man. They saved the league by pumping cash in. I mean, think about it. They said, all right, well, we're going to, you know, our advertisers are going to pay this much. We're going to produce, and they produce great games. I have to tell you that the CFL games that are produced by TSN is outstanding sports television. It really is. Okay? Production value is extremely high. Absolutely. Great game to watch. Great game. Football is a great game to watch. And they do a terrific job of it. And their panel shows are really good. But unfortunately, Scott, when I was growing up, I could name all the guys on the Argos, the Ticats, the Rough Riders, the Alouettes, the Stampeders, the Western Riders, the Blue Bowl. I knew them all by number because they would all play for that team for, you know, five years, six years. They put roots down in the community. It was different then. And now, uh, you know, you turn around and, uh, you know, I mean, you don't recognize guys unless they're Canadians because they tend to stay longer. You don't recognize these guys because they're allowed to come and go as they please. And you're allowed to fly people in and try out camps. And I always, I, I always thought that the stability of the league was based on the stability of the rosters where the fans could have their favorite players and talk about them years later, the way I talk about Mel Prophet of the Argos and Dave huh. Ramey, right? Cause they played there for years, but Prophet also did radio and he, you know what I mean? But now I couldn't, seriously, I could not name a Toronto Argonaut player. I couldn't. That is, except for Benoit Clemens, and that's 30 years ago now, um, that, that really, you know, epitomized the Argonaut that's still around, that's in the Toronto community, that's, 
you know, as, as opposed to being a paid shill. You know, the, the Tiger Cats is a better example because you've got guys from the community. But, but even so, uh, it's not like it used to be. You don't recognize guys. Once their career is over, they go back home to wherever they came from. And, and there's no link there. There's no, you know, um, I don't see people running around going, oh, the, you know, the Argos of the 90s are coming. Let's go. It's going to be a reunion game or, you know, with the Jays, for, for sure. Get those great teams together and people come flocking for autographs. For the Argos we've heard, no. Mark, but we've been hearing since this pandemic has hit, we keep hearing that if they don't play this year, this league is in jeopardy of not even existing. And, and I'm looking going, well, wait a second. I don't, I, I don't think that that's the case. I think if they miss a year, they come back next year. Everybody puts their contract over for one more year and away we go. And you know what? Fans will come back. But it's even people close to the game who are painting this dire prediction of the league. And I'm like, uh, is it really that bad then? Am I missing something here? Is it really that bad that, uh, that you're saying that we're looking at maybe the end of the CFL if something doesn't happen and they don't get a loan from the government? I don't see that. I but do. that seems to I be, do. you do, I, right? do. I saw it. Yeah, I saw it years ago, and they avoided it when they tried their American expansion. What a joke was that? That was in the mid-90s. Shreveport, Memphis, Baltimore, Las Vegas, San Antonio, Birmingham, Alabama. Come on. And people were like, what are you guys, not, why would they do that at the time? Because they were struggling. They had, they had no identity. The Argos were drawing 11,000 fans. The Ticats were drawing 12,000 fans. It wasn't an appealing game you know what i mean i did play by play of the argos for two years i know it was like guys would come and go i'll never forget the time wally's to tell me told me a great story about a time where he's lining up for the tie cats against the argos it's an exhibition game and he looks across from him and the cornerback is a guy named lemuel stinson who is a cornerback who was a starter for the chicago bears the year before he'd been cut by the bears the tie uh, the argos brought him in I'll never forget this. And I'm, and I'm calling the play-by-play, and Wally, he puts this high school inside move on him, and then he blows by him and catches like a 70-yard touchdown pass. And Stinson barely even chases him. And, I, and I'm going, this, this guy was a starter for the – it shows you how bad the Bears were, right? And he was gone in like three days. And I never thought you should be allowed to do that. But if you made a commitment to a player, he had to – you know, he couldn't be just there for a couple weeks. You wanted someone who was going to be part of your team for a number of years so you could build a team, and that's the other thing. With the CFL, every year it's like, well, who we got this year as opposed to, you know, we're building a team. We're building a squad. Here's our key components. Of course the quarterback, but a solid offensive line, good Canadian players, right? You know, all that. They don't have that now. Guys come and go. Mike O'Shea it was is, an Argo, uh, was a Ticat, was an Argo, was a Ticat? Blue Bomber, come on. It's, uh, it, these are difficult times. There's no question. I mean, the NHL, for all the good things the NHL is doing right now to probably find some new fans, the CFL struggling. Listen, uh, Mark, always appreciate having you on. Thanks for taking time today. Mark Hebsher, um, you can buy his book, by the way. Where can people buy your book, Mark? They can contact me, Scott, markhebsher at gmail.com. I'll give them a personally autographed copy. Well, you won't give it to them. You'll sell it to them. Yes, I will. <laughs> Appreciate the time. Thanks for well, doing the greatest this. Greatest athlete you've never heard of. That's right. The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to three on 900 CHML. This is the Scott Thompson Podcast, available on Apple Podcast and Google Podcast, or wherever you get yours. And don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review so you don't miss a thing. I'm Scott Thompson, and thanks for listening.